This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, March 2nd, and for the first time in a couple of months that we've been doing these shows, we can say there's actual baseball on. There's spring training baseball happening right as we are taping this early on the afternoon of Thursday, March 2nd. We are going to talk about a couple of things today. We have to talk about all of the injuries that have been piling up. We're going to talk about how people have been reacting to the first look at the new rules. We're going to talk about how everyone has a new pitch now. And we're going to look into how Toronto's new ballpark might mean more home runs before we get into something very provocative that Ozzy Alves had to say. Matt, I, uh, I hate to start on kind of a downer note, but man, there's a lot of important guys who've gotten hurt in the last week or so. And we're going to go through each of them. And I guess I'll say this. This is the first time in six years, I guess, that we're going to have a World Baseball Classic. Someone's going to get hurt in that tournament and everyone's going to lose their minds. And I think this is a good reminder that spring training is not different. Baseball games are not necessarily a risk-free <laughs> environment. Uh, and we've seen some brutal ones. I guess the most notable one so far is Gavin Lux, who injured his knee running from second to third the other day. He was going to be the Dodgers starting shortstop. He's now out for the year, most likely. And all of a sudden, it seems like Miguel Rojas is going to be the Dodgers uh, starting shortstop. And the question I want to put to you is people are getting angsty about this for good reason, because, you know, Rojas is certainly not uh, the starting caliber guy you'd expect a team like this to have. But also because the Dodgers did just so little this winter, right? They let all the shortstops go. They didn't really do anything big. And now the guy they were banking on got hurt and i think that's somewhat unfair in the sense that this injury could have happened to anybody right if lux had played and didn't perform then yeah kill them for not resigning trey turner totally fine uh, but this could have happened to freddie freeman or mookie Betts or anyone that it happened to lux i don't think is an indictment of the offseason strategy so much although i certainly understand why nobody is happy right now yeah, agreed. I mean, there's there's only so much you can do if someone someone gets hurt. You know, if you have a starting player who you're like, oh, this is one of our our starters, like it's hard to get around that. I think that the Dodgers have been so good at having. I think the thing is that the Dodgers have been so good about having depth and such good replacement plans for everything for so long that it's just kind of jarring that they don't have it here. I think that's what really stands out. Like most teams, just like a star gets hurt, you're kind of screwed. But the Dodgers have been so good about having versatility and all these really good players. And in some ways, what they did this offseason is not who they didn't bring in. It's that like they quietly let a, a lot of good players go. And they're not stars, but they're guys who were like really good for them last year um, or like just key contributors. Everyone like on the offensive side, obviously, like someone like Justin Turner, although they kind of replaced him with J.D. Martinez. But then like on the pitching side with Haney and Chris Martin and Tyler Anderson. So there's like there is a bit of a talent drain there. And they're, they're kind of hoping for the young guys to take a step up. And I think that's what's kind of such a gut punch about this is that Lux is he was good last year, didn't hit for much power, but he had a 113 weighted runs created plus like above average hitter. So it was like he's what twenty four going entering his age twenty five season. So it was like, okay, this could be a guy who pops for us this year. 
So that, I think that's kind of like what's what's so deflating because they they lose one of the guys who's really had some real real room for growth. I think you hit on something there earlier too. In past years, their plans B and C have been better than a lot of teams' plan A, and they just don't have the depth to sustain that because I think the original plan here was so they're probably going to have uh, Miguel Vargas play second base, right? And everybody thinks he, he'll probably hit. Can he play second? Unclear. And so the idea was probably, okay, well, then you bring in Rojas to play short, like late in games, you want defense, you move Lux over to second base. It's pretty solid middle infield defense. Well, now you can't do that because Lux isn't there, obviously. So is Vargas out there in a big spot in the late innings? Or if you move in Chris Taylor, who can play infield and outfield, that's fine. But now you're really relying on uh, you know James Outman, Trace Thompson, David Peralta to show up uh, in the outfield. Now, uh, nobody can see me do this except for you, I don't think. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm wearing a, a devil's hockey hat. I'm going to take it off and I'll put on this Dodgers hat. Did you see the home run just Jason Hayward hit yesterday? That looked so good. Jason Hayward is back. That swing was great. The ball flew off his bat. It was perfect. It was great. Tell me you saw that. I didn't see it, but I mean, really, Jason, this is like, we're getting excited about That's the thing. It's like, we're getting excited about Jason Hayward. You know, things are getting a little... Uh, Getting a little dodgy in Dodgers camp. One subtle thing about the Lux injury, I think, is that the Dodgers are a pretty right-handed team, and it was nice having another lefty bat in that lineup. So, like, that's another thing that's like a small thing that kind of could cascade down the lineup a little bit is that, you know, obviously Freeman and Muncy, left-handed hitters, both very good hitters, so maybe it's not that big of a deal. But other than that, basically all their starters are right-handed hitters. And I think that's kind of a subtle thing that could just hurt the balance of their roster as well. So there's a lot of little things about the, the Lux injury that I think add up to being kind of a big thing and maybe bigger than it would seem when you just look at, like, Gavin Lux as a singular player. I think that's a great point. There are two other injuries in the NL West we should talk about. One is kind of more recent. Yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, uh, Brandon Rogers of the Rockies hurt his shoulder. It was reported it was dislocated. And this morning, Thomas Harding, who writes about the Rockies for us on movie.com, reported more damage than expected. Doctors are still checking, but surgery is possible, which could threaten his season. And I just, I feel bad for Rockies fans. Like they're universally going to be picked last in that division. They haven't done a whole lot. And Rogers, you know, he was a former very high draft pick and he hasn't quite lived up to that, but he was a little bit of like host hype prospect sleeper for a lot of guys this year. Like I've seen him on some of those. Oh, he's going to he's going to break out this year. And I don't know if he's out for the season, but even if he's not, I mean, shoulder surgery is really bad for someone you want power from. And it it's I hate to say it because it's February. I guess it's March. Fine. It's early March. It's going to be a long season for the Rockies. And this is not helping. Like that's that's brutal is all I can say about that. Yeah, I don't. I really don't have much to add there. He's one of the few guys in that roster who you could like. If you're a Rockies fan, be like, oh, maybe this guy pops and finds a new level. He could be like a you know an impact player for us. So to kind of lose a season and what would essentially be like while he's entering his theoretical prime is just a bummer. Uh, one other in the National League West. This doesn't actually sound like a huge deal. Joe Musgrove fractured his left big toe when he dropped a weight on it in the weight room. As far as I understand, he's not even officially out for opening day. He might miss a start or two. It's not that big a deal, I don't think. Certainly, the Dodgers losing Lux is a much larger deal than the Padres losing Musgrove. Uh, there, there are two other ones I wanted to get to. Seiya Suzuki hurt his oblique, and he's going to miss the World Baseball Classic, which is a bummer. Probably out for opening day. Oblique injuries take forever to heal. There's actually another one we got to talk about in a minute. Trey Mancini and Patrick Wisdom are potentially his replacements in right field. I don't know what to make of the Cubs this year. I think... If you were to rate the 30 clubs, like which team is the highest variance of like, oh, they could be good or they could be bad. I guess I'd say Austin, Baltimore, and then the Cubs, because 
they're in a very weird spot. This is not helping. Not at all. I, I mean, I'm looking at the 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 full Fangraph standings projections, which are now up, and they have the Cubs at 75 wins, which actually feels pretty low to me. Um, I would have probably put them right around 81, right, right right around 500. But again, Suzuki is like one of these guys where it's like, okay, he's had a year in the majors now, had a chance to kind of adjust. He showed flashes. He supposedly came in like a little more bulked up, being like, oh, I know, I know what it takes to get through a major league season. It's a little bit different, you know, more games, fewer. You know, if you're off days and in Japan, like I, I'm ready for this. So to lose him for opening day, that definitely is. It's maybe that is kind of why we get knocked you back down to more of that <laughs> 75 win range. The last one here, Tyler Glasnow injured his oblique. He's probably going to be out till May. Now, Matt, I don't know if you saw this because I already had it in our document before, and I've now deleted it in hopes that you didn't see it. Tyler Glasnow has pitched in parts of five seasons for the race, right? Five seasons. How many total innings has he thrown? Over five seasons as a Tampa Bay Ray. Do you know? I'm going to guess like 220. Wow, pretty close. 268. Okay. And that's not a whole lot more than like Aaron Nola threw just last year. Obviously incredibly talented, constantly injured. And this is going to knock him out until, I don't know, May. And it's interesting because I think this was the first time in years that the Rays had what looked like a normal regular starting rotation you know where it's not like four openers and a bullpen game you know it was going to be him mcclanahan rasmussen springs they signed zach eflin and now he's out i don't know how they're going to replace him is it openers is it taj bradley yanni torinos is coming back josh fleming luis patino i mostly feel bad for glasnow and for baseball because i just i want to see he's almost like pitching byron buxton to some extent where it's like, you know, the talent is there. Seems like a great guy. I want to see that one fully healthy season, like just to see what it looks like. And it's not going to happen this year. Honestly, I, I just looked this up and I was like shocked to see. I was like, how old is Glasnow anyway? He's a, he's about to, he's going to turn 30 this year. Yeah. <laughs> like he's been around just for like, a minute. You know, he has been around for a while. It's a bummer. Because um, the other thing is, too, is like, you, you know, you want, especially on the Rays, like you pitchers, they generally don't let pitchers throw a lot of innings and you like, they want to see them build up. So like, is there ever, is there ever a time when he's going to get a chance to throw 150 innings in a year? Even if he was healthy, like I'm not even sure if he was, even if he was healthy this year, they probably would have like made sure he only pitched like 110 innings, keeping his outings at like four and five innings for the most part. And now it's like, well, if he's going to miss part of this year, he won't get a chance to ramp up his innings. Maybe it's best case scenario, 80 innings. And then next year, like it's, 100, then maybe that's 120 innings. So that's kind of a bummer for me. I mean, the Rays did sign him to that two year deal this offseason. So, like, they, they now have him through 2024. So, they're very incentivized to kind of try and figure out a way to maximize his innings and health over that whole span. So, I'm curious to see, like, how they use him when he does come back. Yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned about the Rays. I feel like the Rays will find pitching. Um, they kind of always do. It's more about, oh, it would be cool to see a fully healthy season of Tyler Glasnow. Yeah, it's it's a huge disappointment. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Because we are a baseball show in the first week of spring training, we are legally obligated to discuss the new rules because that's all anybody's talking about, understandably. I honestly think this is going to be, you know, you put all these together. These are going to be some of the biggest changes to baseball we've seen in our lifetimes. And I'm going to tell you, Matt, the thing that sold me on the pitch timer, I I shouldn't say that. I've wanted this for many years. But the the thing that convinced me that it's going to be fine was I saw an article uh, where where Tim Flannery was interviewed. And so he played in the majors for about 10 or 11 years, a longtime coach for the Giants, obviously knows his baseball, but is generally like extremely old school, right? Like the very classic back in my day, that, that kind of guy. And he's like, this is great. Like, this is, oh, I love it. I can't wait. It's wonderful. And I'm like, okay, if Tim Flannery's in, it's going to be great. Everybody's going to be in. And people are excited about this. You look at the first ESPN spring training game the other day, Mets and Cardinals. Uh, it was the biggest spring training game audience on TV since a primetime Cubs game in 2016, which I think is pretty cool. Like People are excited to see this. And if you just look at the, the data here, in the first four full days of games, uh, average game time of two hours and 39 minutes through four days last year, two hours and 57 minutes, which is pretty much as predicted. It was supposed to be about 20 minutes less. And I've been mostly, uh, I think, pleased at the way mostly players are are fine with it, right? You have a guy here and there who's like, oh, I got to get used to it. I'm uncomfortable. Maybe I don't like it. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the more I hear Max Scherzer talk about this and how he's like, this is great. I'm going to use this to my advantage. Here are five ways I'm going to screw with you. Like that's that's my favorite part here, seeing how all these players are going to adjust. The overall praise from play, from everyone has sort of been like what's been most jarring to me, right? Like it's just like I expected a little more pushback. Um, and there really has been much. As you said, there's been a few players here or there. But for the most part, I think people are like, pretty much on board. Players are kind of seeing the benefits, I think. They like the rhythm, you know, talk about being in the field. They like the rhythm. They, you know, I saw Francisco Lindor saying, I like that, like, I don't have to shift anymore. I have to worry about the card. I can just be a shortstop the way I was a shortstop when I was growing up. Like, this is, you know, there's a lot of things. Obviously, the, the pitch timer is the one that kind of gets the 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 most attention. And, I mean, the games are quicker. It's, it's there's definitely some weirdness. It almost feels feels jarring it's a at some moments it feels quick but the reality is that like the baseball for much of history even the baseball that you know even maybe 15 20 years ago was pitchers were pitching within the realm of the pitch clock we just didn't we just didn't know it that <laughs> we weren't even thinking about it at the time but they were pitching oh no one's on base getting it less than 15 seconds run on base eh, throwing it about 20 seconds it's just like now it's not only is it like like being measured it's also being enforced and that's the difference Enforced. That's the word. I think people think this is a brand new rule. This has been a rule for this like forever and nobody's ever paid attention to it. Uh, but you and I, I think we both saw that there was this, um, this document floating around that the league had put together trying to like, you know, outline the ins and outs. And one thing that struck me was, you know, obviously this had been tested over 8,000 games or whatever in the minors. And they had done this survey with minor leaguers. And it was like, when did you start feeling comfortable? You know, when did this not you know feel weird to you? And the most... A given answer was about a month, right? About a month into the season. And I was thinking about that. And then I looked it up and this is true. When this went into the minors, it was kind of cold turkey to start the season. They didn't have like all of spring training to do it. So maybe we're getting our month now during fake games that don't matter. And then by the time the opening day starts, like it'll be, okay, that's our month. Everything's good to go from the start. Like I'm sure that's what everybody involved is hoping for, but I can see that happening because the situation is a little different. 
Exactly. You have to remember the minor leaguers were playing in spring training where it was not where these rules were not in place. So they started this in their season and they basically they said by May they were adjusted. Well, the, the players are getting it now. Maybe some will go to the World Baseball Classic where there are not going to be these rules. We'll have a little bit of like a culture shock when they come back to it. But um, maybe the World Baseball Classic games will be a little bit a little bit quicker as a result of this. I think the one I've had a lot of people I know in my life, just like casual fans, come up to me who've been like, "Yeah, hey, this is like this pitch clock seems awesome." You know, it's like so it's like clearly like which has been cool. Frankly, as someone who works at MLB, it's been cool to see to have people like respond to something like that. It's been almost entirely positive. The one like sort of negative-ish refrain I've heard is sort of this idea that like, oh. In a pitch clock, you don't want to, you know, in the ninth inning of the postseason game, is it going to, is that going to take away some of the drama? You don't want a game to end on a pitch violation. For the second part, we already saw this happen in spring training. One game ended up on a clock violation. By October, people will be so adjusted. There's no chance that a player lets that happen. I mean, I guess there's a chance, and if they will, they will be forever a goat. But then again, you know what, Colton Wong. Ended a pro season game when he got picked off first base. So like that's just as embarrassing. Oh, as... you you lose a World Series game because you were too slow. We will never talk about Bill <laughs> Buckner ever again. You are that guy. But I will say that like you know, and Dave Schoenfeld wrote a piece about this in ESPN, which I thought was interesting. Where he went and looked back at famous plays in baseball history and said like, how would these have been different had there been a pitch timer, right? And like you know, one example I thought was really interesting was like Mario Rivera in Game Seven of the two thousand one World Series. Mario Rivera in Game 7 of the 2001 World Series, when he pitched to Tony Womack, Tony Womack got the big game-tying hit in that game. Every pitch was less than 20 seconds, and all but one was less than 15 seconds. So, like, this is Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer of all time, would have been in line with the pitch clock, right? The counterexample that, that Schoenfeld gave was Kirk Gibson versus Dennis Eckersley in the 88 World Series, that that would not have, like, jibed with the pitch clock. But then again, Kirk Gibson was hurt and, like, had a bum leg, and that was whole part of the drama. Like, that is, like, you know, that is almost like the exception that, <laughs> that proves the rule in my mind. I actually went back myself and I watched um, Mookie Wilson versus Bob Stanley 10th inning, 1986 World Series, Game 6, you know, Bill, the Bill Buckner, Buckner play, every single pitch was less than 20 seconds. We weren't thinking about it then, but that would have been in line with the pitch, the, pitch, the pitch clock. Point being that I think by the time October rolls around, we will be used to this, and it won't, it'll be a, kind of be a reset for a lot of people of what like a lot of the baseball they've already watched, and it won't feel rushed. It'll just be like, oh, this is like a pace at which baseball should be played. Like the Pedro Baez pace that has been like, mocked in multiple videos on the internet this week is not like what are, no one misses that right no one wants that that's what we're trying to get away from honestly somebody should sign Pedro Baez I think he's unsigned bring him back look I want to see him in this new world to your point uh next weekend I'm gonna be in Arizona for the Sabre conference and I'm gonna try to go to a world baseball classic game there's no pitch clock for those games and I'm honestly wondering if I'm gonna be sitting there going come on move it along let's go come on like that might be the last games we ever watch where it's not a pitch clock. And I, I hope I hope you can tell the difference now that we'll have seen a couple weeks of this. There's other rules too. Some of these are a little hard to get into just based on a week of fake spring training baseball, but the shift limitation is in effect. And I pulled some extremely way too early data that you should totally not take seriously, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Remember here, uh, stack hash tracking is only in a handful of parks. Just one in, in Arizona, a couple in Florida. This is not meant to give you like a real good look at the entire league. And obviously, half of these guys in the eighth inning aren't playing in the majors. Caveats, caveats upon caveats, right? Uh, batting average on balls in play from left-handers hitting ground balls in spring training. It was 222 two years ago, 241 last year, and 258 now. 
Is that anything? I don't know. It might not be. We'll find out, but it's it's an interesting place to start. But I have a more uh, an interesting question for you. I don't have an answer, but I've been thinking about this. When you think about what the shift limitation is, uh, it, there's really two things, right? I mean, there's more than that. You can't switch sides and all this. But for the most part, you can't have three infielders on one side. And I think that's the thing most people think about. Okay, you don't have three guys there. But also, the infielders you do have have to stand on the dirt. And I think most people will think of this as saying that the fact that you can only have two guys on one side is the most important part. And I'm sort of wondering if we're thinking about this backwards, because even if you couldn't have that third guy on the right side and you're facing a slow lefty hitter, like let's say uh, Anthony Rizzo, you're probably still going to want to stand as the second baseman, like five feet back in the grass, right? Like I would think so. And I'm not really sure how to pull apart the difference right now, which one's more important, but I can tell you which one people are talking about more. And I'm just not so sure that's actually the one that's going to have the most impact here. It's funny you mentioned this because this is something I've been thinking about for a while, and I think I think the, the the having to have your feet on the dirt is a bigger thing for the reason, like because you, you could still have the shortstop right behind second base, which takes away some of those like kind of hits up the middle and just to the to the right of second base. And as you mentioned, like for a long time, players have been playing kind of second baseman have been playing kind of in in short in short uh, right field, and I mean there aren't that many turf fields anymore. But like back in the day when there were a lot of faster turf fields, you used to see that. Like it was pretty common to see second baseman even deeper into into right field for that reason because the ball moved on you know ground balls moved a lot quicker on the turf. So I think that's going to be that in some ways that also be adjustment for second baseman because like the ball is going to come up on them a lot quicker than they are used to, and they're not going to have the option of saying like you know what oh these these ground balls have been getting to me a little quicker maybe I want to give myself a couple extra steps. You're not allowed to. The other thing I want to talk about, uh, obviously, we're going to be looking at stolen bases with the pickoff limitation, the bigger bases. J.J. Cooper of Baseball America had a little data this morning. He said uh, teams are averaging 1.16 attempts per game. Last year in spring training, it was 0.77, and success rate is up from 73% to 81%. I'm not so sure if that's not just teams trying it to see what happens. You know, we're going to learn a lot more about this over not, you know, a week of spring training games, like to be clear. There's a lot of, I wonder what'll happen. Uh, I, I heard um, the manager of the Pirates, uh, Derek Shelton, on the radio this morning, and he's like, yeah, every time I think we've got all this figured out, we think of like five more things we have to game plan for. So it's all like very much a work in progress. A lot of teams have actually called up their minor league managers who've had to deal with stuff in the past to like teach their major league team, which I find fascinating. But so far, if you're interested in steals at a very high level at a very early date, they're up. I'm just not sure I would put too much into that number yet. I mean, it's the same way that there are always more stolen bases in minor league games than in major league games, just because like it's developmental. People are learning. They're trying. They're more willing. To, it's it's less about winning and losing and more about just like, hey, let me try and figure this out. See how good I am at this. See if I can practice this. So yeah, I'm, I think stolen bases are going to be up. The question is just like, to to what degree? I think one thing that I'm really interested in, as it pertains to stolen bases, is backpicks by the catcher, because I think that those are going to be way up this year, because those are not regulated. They still, it's still going to fall. You still have to follow the pitch clock, mind you. So it's still like you can't just like lollygag and do it. But there's not a limit on it. So I think you're going to see a lot more of it. There's actually um um a an interesting substack that I started subscribing to by a former advanced scout called the advanced scout where he did a whole breakdown of this and looking at which catchers um, uh, 
which catchers have sort of been the most aggressive at doing back pick throws over the years and sort of like looking at the different types of back pick throws. Apparently, I did not know this. I learned this. Wilson Contreras had by far the most attempted back picks in baseball last year. So that's like one of the, you know, if I'm a Cardinals fan especially, um, that's something I'm going to be watching, keeping an eye on. So that's one of those things when it comes to stolen bases, when you talk about, oh, new things I'm learning that might end up having to account for this year. I think that's a big one. Our second topic of our three better minimum, everyone has a new pitch now, it seems. For how many decades of spring training where you hear guys say, I'm here in the best shape of my life, and it really became a running joke because most of those guys never ended up having a better season. And I think the thing now is, oh, I've got a new pitch. Um, sometimes guys say, I have two pitches, or I had a slider, now I've got two sliders. To that end, uh, at, at Baseball Savant, really everywhere across the MLB ecosystem, there's two pitch types you'll see, slurve is now an official pitch type, something between a slider and a curve. And sweeper is now a pitch type, which is a slider with just a whole ton of horizontal break behind it. Shohei Otani throws a sweeper. And what's really been enjoyable for me is watching guys show up in spring training this year saying, yep, I got a new pitch. This is going to be the thing that changes my life. It doesn't always work that way. I have an unofficial list. I'm not going to read them all to you. I'm going to focus on, I think, a couple of the ones that are really interesting to me. And then before we change the topic here, I just want to talk about cutters like as a concept for a second. Um, Two Mariners pitchers, I like this one because not only were they good last year, but I like where they got their pitches from. They both talked to Pitching Ninja about this. George Kirby said he's adding a splitter, which he's modeling after Kevin Gossman. That's a pretty good one to model after. If you remember Kirby's season last year, he's pretty good in the first half of his season. And then he just said, okay, I'm going to start throwing a sinker and a slider, which he hadn't before. And then he walked 15 in his final 15 starts. So if he can start throwing Kevin Gossman's splitter, uh, that's pretty good. He was my dark horse Cy Young pick in an article that'll be coming out in the site soon. And then his teammate Logan Gilbert's also going to throw a splitter, which he said he's modeling after Kodai Senga's ghost fork, which is basically a splitter. If you can start throwing Kodai Senga's ghost fork, I think you're going to have a pretty good season. And then the third one I like, this is a former Mariners pitcher who's now with the Blue Jays, uh, Yusei Kikuchi, who like really struggled badly last year, is throwing a curveball. He, he's got three things. Number one, he's throwing a curveball. Number two, he's got a beard, which I find hugely important. That's the key indicator of success. And number three, based on everything I've read about him, uh, he might benefit from the pitch timer just because he won't have time to think. Like He might be the kind of guy who's a little more effective if he's like, get there, throw the ball, don't overthink what you're about to do. Uh, there's so many layers of the pitch timer onion. I can't, get, I, I can't wait to peel back. But I, I just really enjoy everybody saying, okay, here's my new pitch. This is going to change my life. It's my favorite part of spring training every year. I mean, I will say... I think this has become a bigger thing just because of what we've seen with sort of like pitch design and pitchers having more cognizance of how they can adjust their spin and the release and the ways they can manipulate the ball. But to your point about like the running joke about best shape of their, best shape of their lives, I do kind of feel like I'm working on a cover cutter has also become a little bit of a cliche the last <laughs> couple of years. It's true. Ron Darling on the Mets game the other day said, and I quote, if you notice from yesterday's game, there's always themes in spring training, almost every pitcher was working on a cutter. Here's a couple of guys who I know are adding new cutters this year. Matt Brash, Josiah Gray, Clark Schmidt, Mitch Keller, Griffin Jacks, uh, Andrew Painter, who's Philly's top prospect. I'm sure there's more. I want to I talk about this for a second. When you think of a cutter, and you go back through baseball history, I think most people think, you know, a hard fastball-like pitch with some late break. So like Mariano Rivera threw a cutter. Kenley Jansen threw a cutter. Those are the guys I think of when I think cutter. Now Emmanuel Classe, you know, throws this really hard cutter. And I think it's a little different now. The cutter, it's going to sound weird to say this, it's throwing a not bad pitch, but maybe less effective pitch 
to make your other pitches better. Because what's happening here is you have these guys who will throw a fastball, whether it's a four seamer or a two seamer, you know, it's going to go straight or it's going to fade, you know, towards your, uh, your arm side. And then they've got these big sweeping breaking balls that are going towards your glove side. So I think Brash is a great example. Uh, Adam Adovino is one of those guys. Evan, uh, Ethan Phillips is one of those guys. Evan Phillips. Now I can't remember. I think it's one of them. And then what they're doing is like, well, I need something that's kind of in the middle. I need something that's a little more neutral. It's in between their velocities. It's in between their movements. And it's not necessarily like this is a strikeout pitch, but I think what's happening is when you've got that big sweeping breaker, guys are like, well, if I can figure that out, I'm not swinging at this. That pitch is going to end up 10 feet away from me in the other batter's box. So now I've got to look out for this cutter and maybe you can steal a strike. Maybe it makes them more likely to think it's the sweeper and then go after that. And it's fascinating because it might not be the best pitch. It might not be like the most visually appealing pitch in a vacuum, but it helps your other pitches. Like, I think that's kind of what's happening here. And the Phillies above all other teams, like are really teaching this right. Painter last year, Alvarado and Suarez and Dominguez. And it just, it never stops being fun to think through pitch design. You know, it's not, it's not just high spin fastballs anymore. Now it's here comes the cutter. It's actually new pitches or is this like just what pitching is? Like I used to think, you know, you, I mean, we're talking about an all time great here, but like, this is like what Greg Maddox used to talk about where it's like, Oh, I would just try and like, change, manipulate my fingers a little bit, like, oh, this time I'm going to throw this two-seamer, but maybe I'll put a little less pressure, I'll make it cut a little bit more this way, or the same thing with my slider, like, I'm trying to, like, not throw the same exact version of the pitch every time, and it just sort of feels like, okay, actually, you know, this is kind of my fastball, but I'm going to change it a little bit and just try and maybe give it a slightly different look. Sometimes, I mean, I feel like that's maybe this is just the evolution of pitching, where now it's becoming a more defined thing when pitchers are taking these like in between pitches and making them distinct offerings. Well, you can measure it mostly. Like we don't have, we don't have the data for Greg Maddox's prime and True. the pitchers can throw it in a bullpen and right away see that's what's happening, which you certainly could do. And I, I should say what I was talking about before about trying to get the cutter between those two pitches. A lot of that comes from this really great article that was written on uh, Prospects Live a couple months ago. Uh, just kind of a, a fascinating sort of tunneling idea, but like trying to get other shapes of your pitches. The third topic here, the Toronto Blue Jays have changed uh, the dimensions of their ballpark. This was reported a couple months ago. We finally went in and looked at the stack cast numbers, as we did with uh, Comerica for Detroit a while back. And it's really interesting. Um, Keegan Matheson is going to write about this at BlueJays.com soon. I got all this data and I sent it to him. So here's what's happening. Previously, their ballpark, uh, the wall height, was very consistent. It was a consistent 10 feet all the way around from foul pole to foul pole. Now it's going to be inconsistent. They're shortening it to eight feet in center field, but it's going to be a little higher, 11 to 12 feet in the alleys and as high as 14 feet near the poles. But at the same time, they're pulling the distance in. Center field remains the same, but the power alleys are coming in about 10 feet. And in right center field, there's this weird sort of inverted triangle thing that's going to come in 16 feet from 375 to 359. Uh, Alan Nathan, who has been on this show before, who is a very famous baseball physicist, uh, was asked about this by the scorer. And he basically said, if you're going to bring your fences in 15 feet, you better raise them 15 feet. You know, there's something like a one-to-one correlation there. And he's like, four feet's not going to do it. And well, I think he's right. So what we did was we looked at all the numbers from last year, all the trajectories of, of balls that were or weren't home runs. Here's what we found. There would have been 26 balls hit in Toronto last year that did not go out, that would have gone out with the new dimensions. Now, because some of the fences went up, there's actually seven home runs that would have been lost. So we'll call it 19 home runs. That's about one every four games 
And if you look back at what happened last year, there were 204 home runs hit in Toronto, which was the fourth most in baseball behind Cincinnati, Milwaukee, and New York. Well, you add 19 home runs, that makes it first. And this isn't new for them. Like you go back to the previous 10 full seasons where they play there from 2010 to 2019, they had there were the third most home runs hit there behind Baltimore and the Yankees. And of course, Baltimore doesn't count anymore because they push their fences back. This is the new Homer Dome. Like it's people think course, it's not course. If you want home runs, it's Toronto. That I'm not happy if I'm Chris Bassett. I think I'm thrilled if I'm like Dalton Varsho, but that, that's what the data says right now. Two, two thoughts about this. First, th- th- a spot at 359 to right center feels pretty close. That feels like for, for a power alley, that feels about as shallow as you're going to get in a major league park. I mean, I kind of have to see it in action, but like that feels pretty short. One. Two. I mean, the last few years, if you're a Blue Jays player, the environments and circumstances you've had to play in, like 2020, because of the, the pandemic, they played in Dunedin, they played in Buffalo. 2021, they played in all three, Dunedin, Buffalo, and Toronto. I think so, yeah. And then Toronto, they, they played a full season in Toronto last year, and then now they're coming back to Toronto, but with all their dimensions. <laughs> There haven't been that many players who've been there the whole time, but I mean, I think Bichette and Vlad Jr. have been, and probably a couple others. Um, it's just pretty funny, all the different changes in environments that team has had to play in. Yeah, and I'm fascinated because in the press release they put out, they said, well, we, we modeled it and it's going to you know, be a neutral change. And I believe them. Like They have very smart people working there, but that's not what our numbers say. <laughs> so it's like, we should be working off the same data here. I really, really want to see how this plays out. Like, I, I cannot wait for that. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about something that Ozzy Albee said. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt, you found something very interesting that Ozzie Albies of the Braves told Jason Stark of The Athletic. He said he thinks the Braves can have three 40-40 guys this year, 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases. Uh, there have only been four 40-40 seasons in the history of baseball, and certainly none of them were on the same team. Uh, none of them happened to the same season. None of them have happened since Alfonso Soriano back in 2006. Obviously, a part of that is that stolen bases have declined. And as we've talked about a couple of times, the idea is maybe that'll change this year. Stolen bases are probably likely to go up with the new rule changes by how much we don't really know. And yet, when I think about this, I guess I should say who he's talking about. He's talking about himself, Michael Harris, and Ronald Acuna. My my question here isn't about whether they can steal 40 bases. My question is about whether Ozzie Albies and Michael Harris are hitting 40 home runs. I think that's that's the first place I'm starting with. Like, I appreciate the uh, the bravado here, and I hope it happens. And I think there are some guys who could maybe do it, but I think I'm taking the under on Ozzie Albies and Michael Harris combining for 80 homers. Fair point. And and to be clear, like it was kind of a, a conversation with Stark that he list he runs down in the article on the Athletic, and he kind of, he almost like kind of like led Ozzy Alves to this. Like he kind of like went through the lineup and it was like he, you know he's like oh yeah Cunha could do it, and then he was like well what about you? He's like oh yeah he's like I want to do thirty thirty, but forty forty is the goal. And he's like what about Harris? He's like yeah Harris can do it. So and then Stark is kind of like so you're saying you can have three forty forty guys? And he's like sure why not? So it's like it wasn't like he come out and proclaimed this, but it was sure. an interesting. Interesting thought exercise for me. I was like, well, okay. I could see – I will say this. I do think 
because of the pitch timer and the restrictions on those first base, steals are going to be more at the forefront of players' minds. They're going to be more excited to try and steal bases, I think. And, like, if you go back in history, you notice that, like, so there have been four 40-40 seasons. You mentioned Soriano in 2006, A-Rod in 1998, Barry Bonds in 1996, Jose Canseco in 1988. And in the late 80s and early 90s, you had a, this was, like, the heyday of power speed, guys. You saw a lot of players doing 30-30 some you know it was like there was a, it was like a thing you know there was like power speed was like a thing there were players who were trying to do it Dallas Strawberry came close Eric Davis came close uh, Howard Johnson came close there's I'm sure there's others I'm forgetting um and I guess that what I I could see now some of these like power hitting speed guys being feeling like oh this is cool again this is the thing I'm gonna try and do so I could definitely see because it, it's been a while did we? I guess Acuna did thirty five. Did thirty thirty a couple years ago? He actually did thirty five thirty five. Um, so I could He's see forty one thirty seven or something like that. He came close. Okay. Um, so I mean, I'm curious to see if anyone tries it again. I mean, and also Matt Kemp came close like ten years ago. Maybe the year he probably should have won a VP. I think he came close. Same thing. So I, what this got me thinking was like, okay, well, if we see a forty forty season this year. Who's it going to be? I do feel like Acuna is like the obvious, if he can stay healthy. Um, he's the obvious guy. But like, who else do you think could do it? Well, you stole my guy because I, I mean, I know our little like pre-show conversation here. Julio Rodriguez, I think, is pretty obviously the guy. To me, it's got to be someone who's on the younger side because like we've seen a lot of players like, you know, Mike Trout's a great example. Is he capable of it? Sure. And when he first came up, he stole, you know, 40 or 50 bases that one year. He's not running anymore. Like that is not his game. That's not what he's going to be doing. Will he steal? 10 bases, 15, fine. He's not getting to 40. So Rodriguez makes the most sense. I think Bobby Witt is an interesting name. He was, I believe, 2020 last year. Uh, didn't play great defense, but obviously he's going to play every day. He is someone I could see doing. Like I, I love his offensive profile. I just wonder if he puts himself into situations to steal enough because his on-base percentage was like, okay, and he hits home runs. So how often is he standing on first base? I guess that's kind of like the trick is it's not just like hitting home runs, but also walks and singles, which is not really his strength. That was the first name that came besides for Julio Rodriguez. That's a really interesting name. And that's a really good point. Like the way you kind of frame that. Cause I never, really, cause you see the, you look at like, Oh, he's got no decent OBP, but it's like, well, if 30 of those are homers, like he's not on right. first. So you like take those away from something like his OB, his non Homer OBP is actually pretty, pretty low. And that's what you need to steal 30 to 40 bases. But I think he's an interesting name. Um, you're right. It's probably, you know, someone under the age of definitely someone under the age of 30, probably someone under the age of 25. The name that comes to my mind, the similar category would be Byron Buxton kind of more. He's more like trout where like, he's probably capable of doing it, but like, even when he's healthy, he's quietly stopped stealing bases the last few years. Um, you know, he had that one year where he like was he was twenty nine for thirty in two, two thousand seventeen, but he has just seventeen steals over the last three seasons <laughs> combined. So he's probably capable, but I'm sure the Twins are going to be like, "We want you on the field. Do not steal bases." That said, the bigger bases are supposed to help with player health, but um, that's not why he's been hurt. <laughs> no, it's not. So. <laughs> I think yeah. So I think I think Acuna, Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt are like probably the best choices. Um, you know, you mentioned to me earlier Kyle Tucker, and I think that he's an interesting name, but he feels more to me like a more like a tactical base stealer, more like Chase Utley was, where like I'm very I'm not the fastest guy, but I know how to steal bases. And like 
when I'm 98% sure I'm going to be safe, I'm going to steal. But that's like, you know, maybe, you know, once every two weeks. You know, he was like, was, was he like 21 for 21 last year or something like that? Higher than that. Do, do you remember in 2021, a player we haven't mentioned yet who went uh, over 45 and over 25? Extremely famous. Very famous. Also pitches. <laughs> oh, oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Shohei Otani in 2021, 46 homers and 26 stolen bases. Now, I can't imagine they're, they're saying to him, go steal 40 bases this year. <laughs> that seems in, ineffective, I guess, but he could do it. It is his walk year. It is his walk year. Do you do you remember when we were kids and, and Jose Canseco did the first 40-40? That was such a big deal. And they, they opened, I think it's still there, they opened clubs in the city called the 40-40 Club. Like This was a monumental deal back then. It was, it said, it, not they. It was opened by Jay-Z. My, Jay-Z opened the well, 40-40 Club. Okay, what do I know? I've never been to the 40-40 Club. I actually, I went to the 40-40 Club once and it was in the middle of the week in like 2005. And it was after a Knicks game with my friends because it's right by Madison Square Garden. And there was no one there. So they let us into one of these like, they were like, hey, do you guys want to go play pool? It was like one of these like exclusive like pool rooms. So we went up there and like five minutes later, a group of Mets who'd been at the Knicks game walked in to play pool. It was like Tom Glavin, David Wright, and Steve Traxel. It was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. Does Steve Trashel play pool as slowly as he pitched? Can we get <laughs> bringing it back? Can we get Steve Trashel on the mound in a pitch timer world? Okay, yes or no question. Does anybody do 40-40 this year? Yes. I think no. Ronald Cunha Jr. will do 40-40 this year. No. You, come on. You always have to bet the field on these things. You always take no. The answer is obviously no. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.